This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome. I'm David Brenner. I'm the Vice Chancellor for Health Sciences at UC San Diego. And thank you for joining UC San Diego Health Talks on COVID-19. As we all know, we are in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And UC San Diego is doing a lot to help support the worldwide response. So unfortunately, instead of being with you in person today, we are going to do this as our first Zoom health talk. I have to say my previous experience with the Zoom conferences has been really excellent. And we're able to get groups of people throughout the world to interact together. The only sad part is I will not be able to have a, um, a drink with you at the end of the conference. So I'm sorry for that, and I miss you all terribly. And it's now my pleasure to um, introduce um, Cheryl Anderson. Thank you, Vice Chancellor Brenner, and uh, hello, everyone. So as Vice Chancellor Brenner mentioned, uh, we're here today virtually because we're in the midst of arguably the largest public health crisis that we're going to see in our lifetime. And in this great time of need, our UC San Diego community has been able to harness our human resources, our physical resources, so that we can respond effectively to the medical, social, and behavioral aspects of COVID-19. For our community, hopefully you've been able to see that we've really been a source of reliable and accurate information and the kind of trustworthiness that one needs to have with the community uh, we've been able to establish. Now, if you have a good sense of UC San Diego history, you'll know that we've had public health teaching, clinical and research activities happening here since 1966, uh, with much of that concentrated in the School of Medicine and some important and complementary activities happening in other parts of our campus. Now, our ability to mount what is a strong public health response uh, to COVID-19 has largely been because of a transformational event that happened for us last year. We got a gift from the visionary uh, Dr. Herbert Wertheim and Mrs. Nicole Wertheim to start the new Herbert Wertheim School of Public Health on our campus. And those conversations around starting the school, it really allowed us to think about how do we use modern techniques to galvanize and energize us to solve 21st century public health problems. And you'll see it playing out right now in how our campus has been able to respond. We have been collaborating with community agencies, with our county health department, with our public health researchers, our health system administrators, the infectious disease doctors like Dr. Smith, who's on today, basic scientists like Dr. Bowie, who's on, and our engineers. And it's really bringing out the best of who we are um, as academicians committed to both science and service. Now, we're working really hard to advance the science and community partnerships that are necessary to solve the immediate issues around COVID-19, as well as some of the longer term issues. And we wanna do it in a way that's effective as well as equitable. Equity is really at the core of, of what public health is about. So we're hopeful that our work together right now across this campus, across this region, is gonna leave us with some systems, some policies and some norms that are gonna sustain us for the long run. 
So for me, I just want to right now say it's a privilege to be able to do the kind of work that can impact so many people. It impacts our students. It impacts the citizens of uh, this region, as well as our global um, situation. And when I teach our students uh, foundations of public health, I tell them on the first day that when public health is going well, no one notices. It's really a profession full of compassion and humility. However, in times like these where there's a pandemic, you can see how public health efforts really are what's needed to save people's lives. So public health is for all of us and public health takes all of us. So I'm grateful for this time that we're gonna have with you, our beloved friends and supporters during this health talk. And I look forward to hearing your questions and your ideas and whatever emerges for us during this time together. Thank you. Cheryl, thank you so much for this introduction. It's um, now my pleasure to introduce um, Davey Smith, who is Chief of Infectious Diseases and Global Health. He um, is an expert in translational research virology. He takes basic science research and uses it to answer clinically relevant questions. He is the acknowledged world expert on um, HIV, the, um, the virus that causes AIDS. And he's used this enormous expertise as foundation to study uh, SARS-CoV-2, um, the um, COVID-19 um, cause of um, COVID-19. So taking one, vi one virus and then using it to study another virus, and hopefully it'll greatly accelerate our understanding of um, COVID-19 by applying all our known um, expertise in virology. And he's gonna answer the very difficult question, how do you get out of a pandemic? <laughs> Dr. Smith. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, my name is Davey Smith. I'm the Chief of Infectious Diseases from Glo and Global Public Health here at UC San Diego. And today I'm gonna to talk about how you get out of a pandemic. And I think the answer to that question is science. So in pandemic survival, there's a few tools that we have. One is testing, that's how you know where the pathogen is. And there's also treatments and that's to help people who have the infection already. And then vaccines are how to protect ones who are already at risk. Right now we have testing, not enough of it, but at least we know how to do it. Treatments hopefully will be coming soon, probably in the next few months as randomized controlled trials are getting underway and finished. And then vaccines are starting to be developed, but it's still gonna be a while till that happens. So how is UC San Diego moving basic discoveries from bench to bedside? We have some translational research partners. The NIH has been our long steady partner, but right now they just haven't been able to give us the funds quickly enough to help tackle this epidemic. Gates Foundation and other foundations have stepped up a little bit. Industry is all about getting their drugs or vaccines into market and to help them along the way to help this epidemic is also good. Uh, same thing, but with philanthropy, it's really helped us a lot and helped get uh, the science underway um, much better. One of these is the 3D printed swabs. We ran out of swabs early to be able to do testing and we relied on our engineering partners and they were able to give us 3D printed swabs and there I am with a 3D printed in 95 mask. So we ran out of masks, so we asked for 3D printed ones and they came to the rescue. So diagnostics is another big one. If we're gonna flatten the curve, we need more testing. And this is me actually at the beginning of the epidemic testing out one of our uh, lab platforms um, for testing. Without testing, we're blind to when and where and to how to implement prevention measures and to flatten that curve. Since the beginning, we have not had enough testing. Uh, and what we had was just not validated. So there were lots of false positives and lots of false negatives, and we really couldn't trust the test. We also needed samples to validate these tests, hopefully to be able to flatten this curve. 
So we actually started a UCSD COVID clinic. It was the first COVID clinic in California and it was the only one and it continues to be the only one in San Diego. It's a telehealth clinic and people who are sick are triaged to the emergency room, but they're all positive, usually doing pretty well at home, but want to talk to an infectious disease doctor. And this is Dr. Ritter down there smiling. She was our UCSD physician of the year in 2018, and she's now leading this clinic. But we're also giving opportunities for these patients to come and provide samples for the validation of those tests. And these are all the tests that we're doing right now. The first set of tests are these PCR tests. We have about 10 different platforms that we're currently in the lab that we uh, validate to look for the actual RNA of the virus. And this is the Fluxergy machine off there to the right, and we can get results back in about an hour with that machine. The other ones that are coming online are called serology machines, and that's the antibody that detects the viral infection. And we have a handful of those that are currently in the works, and hopefully um, we can get those to be better. And off to the right, it's a lateral flow test for serologies, where we do a pinprick, get a little bit of blood, place it on there, and we can see whether or not someone has antibodies already to the virus. We actually use these platforms for a pretty cool um, project. Basically, we were trying to hope figure out how to open up labs sooner and quicker and safer, and especially also clinics, because patients, some patients still need to come into the clinic. Let's say they're a cancer patient or an HIV patient. They need to see their doctor or get their chemotherapy. How can we protect them when they come into clinic? Well, we don't have enough tests to run on everybody. So now we use pooling testing. And basically here is where we took all the people who were working in a COVID lab and every day we did a nasal swab and then we put that nasal swab in viral transport media and then we combined five of these tests all into one that's called a mini pool and then we did a test on that one mini pool if it was negative we were reasonably assured that everybody in the mini pool was negative if it was positive we would go back and check and see which one of the people in the pool who were positive positive. and we did this for a while and we found one of our lab techs who came back positive and then we tested everybody else. We, they went home um, and they were okay and they went home, but then we tested all the rest of the lab techs and they also turned out to be okay. But by doing the serial testing, we were able to prevent infection that happened in the lab. And it might be a way forward for these clinics and other labs, maybe even schools to open back up. The next thing we need is treatments. And to do treatments, we really need very high, safe uh, laboratory measure. Uh, procedures, and this is what we call biosafety level three, and we have one of those labs now at UCSD, and this at the bottom is Carol Ignacio. She's my senior lab technician, and she runs our biosafety level three, and this is her <laughs> trying on all her gear, getting ready to restart our BSL-3 for cov 2 research. So the first thing we did is repurpose old treatments. So how do we actually stop the virus? The first treatment that was there that was used for SARS-CoV-1 and for Ebola and for MERS was called remdesivir. You might've heard about it in the news. And we were one of the first sites to try it out. It, that trial stopped on Sunday and they haven't yet released the results, but we were one of the first groups to be able to bring that trial to patients. And the next one is hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Those trials, both inpatient and outpatient, are going to be sponsored by the NIH. We are prime sites for both of those. And in fact, we lead the outpatient trial for that. We're also doing that as an adaptive trial design so that uh, once we figure out if those drugs work or if they don't, then we go on to the next drug that might work. So it's keeping that infrastructure in place and UC San Diego actually leading the way to get the tests, um, to get the trials that we need to get those drugs to market and to patients who can use them. The next one is Ramipril. So this is just a, 
example of how we're partnering with Pfizer to use one of their ACE inhibitor drugs to try that in patients as well. Another one that's very interesting is that sometimes people who uh, have had the infection, they develop enough antibodies that can protect from another infection. If you transfuse that blood into that person, you can help them, and that's called convalescent sera, and we're working on trying to get that into our patients if possible. The other thing about this disease is it's not just the infection. The infection causes, in some people, for the uh, immune system to go haywire, and what I mean by that is it causes lots and lots of inflammation. And that's where you get the pneumonia and so bad that sometimes people need to go on ventilator. That's actually not about the infection itself, but the immune response to that infection. So there are some drugs that we've been using in cancer therapies for a while, like tocilizumab and others that can prevent perhaps that inflammatory response. And we're testing those drugs like tocilizumab now, and we're working with other companies who have similar drugs to perhaps help patients in that way. And then we're also making new treatments by screening old drugs to see if we can make them better. And we've partnered with Scripps Research Institution for screening large drug libraries. And we've already identified 12 new drugs and we're working on trials to try to figure out how to test them. These are all antiviral drugs. And other UCSD professors like Dr. Shirash and Dr. Varner have developed drugs along the way for years. And we're now testing those to see if they can also help um, prevent COVID infection. We're also making new ones. We have new lung models to test new drugs. And one thing that I wanted to point out is the little cartoon here is about monoclonal antibodies. And this is where someone gets infected with coronavirus and they make an immune response and one of those antibodies really works against coronavirus. And then we can pluck that antibody out and make lots and lots of it. And then we can use it as what we call a monoclonal antibody to give it as a drug to prevent somebody else from getting infected or after they become infected to actually treat them. And that's very exciting. And we've been working on that quite heavily. The next big step is we need a vaccine. That is the gold standard. That's what's really gonna get us out of the pandemic. But it's gonna take us a while. But we've been working with two companies. One is a San Diego company called Inovio. And they d- deliver DNA and basically in a shot of COVID-2 protein. So the DNA goes into the muscle and it makes the co- coronavirus proteins that then the immune response happens to make an antibody that hopefully protects them from being infected. Uh, we're going to be a site for the second phase of their testing of their vaccine. They already did the first phase. So we're pretty excited to be involved with that. The next company is called Synvivo. And they are, have their FDA in progress, and we're going to be the only U.S. site, and that probably starts at the middle of May, so soon. And it's a funny, very interesting, very cool idea, but basically they take a uh, bacteria here, and in the bacteria they have this little thing called a plasmid construct, and that plasmid makes coronavirus protein. So people drink the bacteria, it goes and lives in the gut. It's a common bacteria that lives in the gut anyway. But then when it starts making this protein, the immune response goes to that protein and makes the antibodies that hopefully can protect somebody from coronavirus later on. So we'll see if it works. These are very exciting things. Um, Hopefully we can help develop and bring those to market. But the big thing is future directions. How do we survive a pandemic? We need to know that they're coming. And I was a Boy Scout, so the motto of being a Boy Scout was to be prepared. And it's not like we didn't know this was coming. This this is the timeline of all the viral infections and pandemics that have occurred in my lifetime. 
So HIV, SARS-1, swine flu, avian flu, MERS, Ebola. We've heard about them all along the way, so we shouldn't have really been surprised when SARS-CoV-2 happened. So how do we prevent from that happening in the future? Or what can we do about it? Well, first, we have to do surveillance. Like right now, we already know that there are hundreds of coronaviruses living in bats right now just ready to jump over to humans. But we don't know how to test for them, so that would be something that we could actively do now. We could also screen drugs for them, we could develop drugs for them, we could make vaccines for them. So that would be an pandemic response to be proactive versus reactive that we're doing. And then we wouldn't have to have my brother, who is here in his PPE, come out from Tennessee to volunteer at Miramar. It was good to see him, but it'd be better to be prepared and not have to have this disaster management actually happen. So thank you for your attention. Dr. Smith, thank you, that was fantastic. Really appreciate it. Um, next, I would like to introduce our, our second research speaker, um, Dr. Lars Bode. He is director of the Larson Rosenquist Foundation Mother Milk Infant Center of Research Excellence, which has the great acronym Mommy Corps. Uh, Dr. Bode is an expert on um, human milk oligosaccharides and identifying maternal factors that influence how these oligosaccharides um, are linked to infant health and disease outcomes. He's now going to tell us how um, human milk impacts um, human health um, in general and how it might play a role in COVID-19. Dr. Bode. Hello, my name is uh, Lars Bode. I'm a professor of pediatrics here at UC San Diego and also the director of the Mother Milk Infant Center of Research Excellence at UC San Diego. And I'm going to show you a few slides what Mommy Core, as we call it for short, is all about, and then move into why we're interested in COVID-19, what we're doing in that space for maternal infant health, but also uh, how we're trying to discover new components that might actually help us in the fight against this devastating virus. So before we get into COVID-19 and the research that we're doing in that space, what is actually MommyCore? MommyCore stands for the Mother Milk Infant Center of Research Excellence. And why are we so interested in human milk? So let's get uh, to this one statement that I always find very fascinating. And that is from a paper that came out in 2016 that says that the death of 823,000 children and 20,000 mothers each year could be averted through universal breastfeeding, along with economic savings of $300 billion. So that's huge numbers that are associated just with breastfeeding. And the question is, what is so powerful in human milk that it can actually save lives? So one example here for the infant, we unfortunately lose about 2,200 children under the age of five every single day to diarrhea. On the other hand, we see that children who are breastfed have a substantially lower risk of suffering and dying from infectious diarrhea, as well as from respiratory infections. So what is in human milk that makes it so powerful to save infants from these devastating diseases? Also, it's not just the acute benefits for the infant. There is benefits for life when it comes to breastfeeding. So, for example, infants that are breastfed have a lower risk for overweight and obesity later in life. Breastfed infants also have a lower risk for diabetes and have a higher IQ and earning potential, even if we correct those data points for socioeconomic status and other potential confounders. So again, what is in human milk that makes uh, it so powerful? 
And it's not only good for the breastfed infant, it's also good for the breastfeeding mother. For example, we see that mothers who breastfeed have a lower risk for diabetes, lower risk for cardiovascular disease, so that's heart attack, stroke. And we also see that women who breastfeed and the longer they breastfeed have a lower risk for breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So how does this all work? What is in human milk that even protects mom when she's breastfeeding? And not only that, it's not just the mother and the infant. We think that there is opportunities for people of all ages. So if we look at all these devastating diseases like cardiovascular disease, 18 million people die every year from cardiovascular disease, heart attack, stroke, arthritis, diarrhea, infectious superbugs are predicted to kill about 10 million people every year starting 2050. One in five children uh, under the age of 18 uh, will develop obesity. Almost half a billion people suffer from diabetes. In the US alone, more than 3 million people have inflammatory bowel disease, IBD. And one in eight women will develop breast cancer. So really, we have a world in crisis even before this pandemic started. We need answers. We need cures for these devastating diseases, or ideally we want to prevent them from happening in the first place. So what do we do by we looking for answers? We go back to the chemistry lab and develop all kinds of uh, molecules that help us um, in this fight against these diseases. And many of these uh, drugs or injections come with a lot of side effects. This is the traditional way of fighting diseases, but maybe we're looking in the wrong places. Maybe we should be looking to human milk for new answers. And that really is a non-traditional way of looking at science. So I'll give you one example of what we've done in the lab over the past few years. And that is in the space around rheumatoid arthritis. 1.3 million people in the US alone suffer from arthritis. So what we've done over the last few years, we have identified a component in human milk that not only reduces inflammation in tissue culture in the lab, but also reduces joint swelling and pain in animal models of arthritis, can be synthesized at very low cost and can get fast-tracked through the FDA because they are components of human milk and considered safe for human consumption. So this is a project that really went from tissue culture and is now ready for clinical trials that are supposed to start this year. This is just one example. We also have great data looking at heart attack and stroke. We see that some of those components in human milk can improve gut health, reduce diarrhea and infections, reduce overweight and obesity, potentially help with diabetes, uh, potentially reduce dementia, and also help us in the fight against breast cancer. So this is what MamiCore is doing and set out to accomplish it's really two different areas that MamiCore is focusing on. One is maternal infant health, and the other one is looking to human milk to develop new therapeutics and safe uh, therapeutics and diagnostics uh, for people of all ages. So this all happened in the last three to four years um, after the inception of MamiCore, and then coronavirus hit. So now the question is, what does human milk have to do with the coronavirus? Why do we study human milk and coronavirus. And the first question really is, is it safe to breastfeed if mom has the coronavirus? 
is the coronavirus potentially coming through human milk, through breastfeeding and infects the baby through the process of breastfeeding? Fortunately, we can say that all the data that we have so far, most of that is coming out of China where the first infections happened, is that the virus is not present in human milk and there's likely no risk of transmission from mom to baby through breastfeeding. We are confirming that currently with samples that we collected here in the US and we should have additional data very soon, potentially already this week. Uh, but I think we can say that it is safe to breastfeed because the virus does not make it in human milk. And that is very important. It's very important to have that information based on real science, based on real evidence to guide and support parents and healthcare providers to make the right recommendations and for parents to be at ease when they decide to breastfeed or not. But more importantly, and I think this is really a golden opportunity, is to look to human milk, whether there are any antiviral components. So are there components in human milk that can actually stop the virus? So when mom is exposed, or anyone is exposed really, we start to make antibodies. Our immune system responds to the virus, we make antibodies, and in many other disease cases, we see that those antibodies are then transferred with the human milk and provide protection for the infant as well. So that is something that we're looking for here with the coronavirus. Is mom making antibodies? And if so, are those antibodies getting into the human milk and confer protection to the infant as well? Then independent whether moms are infected or not, there is many other components in human milk, like oligosaccharides that we are focusing on here at UCSD, but also antimicrobial peptides that potentially kill the virus independent of whether mom has seen the virus before or not. And of course, that is also, again, very important to guide and support parents and healthcare providers, because now we can not only tell parents that, well, it's safe to breastfeed because the virus is not in human milk, but not only that, Human milk provides all these other additional components that potentially protect your infant from this virus. And last but not least, we want to see if we can make some of those components available and use them not just for the infant, but synthesize them and then develop new antiviral components to stop the pandemic altogether. So is it possible that we find molecules in human milk, synthesize them afterwards, and then stop the virus by killing it or by, by preventing uh, infection. So what does success of all this look like? Um, one is that we want to have parents that are confident to breastfeed. We want healthcare providers to make recommendations based on evidence, based on real science and data, and not just based on assumptions. And of course, we would like to have novel and safe antiviral components that come from human milk. And we know that human milk is safe. Components in human milk are safe for adults. We don't have to worry about side effects. So uh, really to find components that are in human milk that have antiviral ability uh, would be a major breakthrough. And last but not least, uh, this is not just about this pandemic. This is not just about coronavirus. It is not a question of of uh, if the next virus and the next pandemic hits, it's just a question of when. And I think next time we just need to be ready. We need to have mechanisms in place to immediately screen human milk to say that, yes, in the case of this new pandemic, it is safe to breastfeed or, oh, wait a second, this virus or this other pathogen is coming through human milk, so it's better not to breastfeed. We need to have that information right away 
to make sure that no one is confused and no one is in fear of whether there's an infection risk or not. And we need to have mechanisms in place to screen human milk components for their antiviral uh, ability uh, right away. So it's just a question of readiness. We were certainly not ready for this pandemic, and that's why it has so devastating um, uh, outcomes. Uh, Next time, we need to be ready, and that is one of our goals, to just have all those protocols in place that when this happens again, that we are ready. So what does it take to get there? Uh, It takes expertise. We are experts on human milk. We are certainly not experts uh, on viruses and certainly not on coronavirus, but we have the experts at UCSD. Uh, So we're teaming up with experts at the uh, San Diego Center for AIDS Research, for example. They have all the expertise coming from the HIV um, virus uh, and all the technologies to really uh, analyze and, and study this in great detail. We're also teaming up with Mummy's Milk, which is the human milk research biorepository led by Christina Chambers. Uh, We have milk samples that are readily available that we can screen for the virus, have control samples. So it really is that infrastructure that is needed. Also, the uh, San Diego Mother's Milk Bank is very uh, much involved in this endeavor. What we also need is resources. And we are very fortunate to have uh, a great partner in Switzerland with the Family Lars and Rosenquist Foundation, who not only uh, donated uh, about $10 million to start MommyCore in the first place, uh, but who immediately, literally overnight, gave us emergency funding to start working on COVID-19 and look to human milk, uh, whether the virus is there and if we find antiviral components. In addition to that, we're extremely grateful to have a a personal donation from the community um, where a couple made a very, very generous donation uh, to our center to answer some of these questions as well. If you're on the call right now, uh, thank you again for this very, very generous uh, uh, donation and support of our work. So, but back to where we started, uh, life and death is not starting and stopping with the COVID-19 pandemic. All these things are still happening and they are still killing us and they will continue to kill us as this pandemic hopefully comes to an end soon. Uh, So we are calling this the milk moonshot in a non-traditional way to look to human milk for new answers to all these devastating diseases. And As we go through the crises and hopefully learn a lot from how to be ready next time, I think we should also not forget that there is many, many, many other killers uh, in the world that we need to take care of as well. Thank you very much. So uh, let me thank um, Dr. Bode for his fantastic presentation. And we now are in the question and answer segment. When will the FDA approve COVID antibody testing? Um, When will it be readily available? And... um, why is it so difficult to get tested today? I don't know when the FDA is going to approve. They've, they started to approve some antibody tests, and then they came back and said that, there more, that more testing needed to be done. There was a bunch of false negatives and even some false positives in the serology testing. So they're going back to that. And to the second part, uh, so I don't know when that's going to happen. We are validating about three platforms now here at UCSD, and I think they're going to work well at the FDA side. Uh, why, why is it testing widely available currently is because of all supply reagent issues. So uh, we were late to the game in terms of we, the United States and the CDC and getting reagents for a lot of these tests. We relied on a lot of pharmaceutical and company partners. And by the time that the infection hit the United States, South Korea, Taiwan, China had really sort of taken up all those reagents already. I'm going to keep going with Dr. Smith because there are a lot of questions about testing. Um, can healthy people be tested um, for the antibodies? 
yes, healthy people can be tested for the antibodies. So once we have a good test, uh, one of the big things we want to do at UCSD is to do an epidemiologic study and go out into the population in the community and work with Cheryl to test people who may have had who may have had the infection and not known it. And that will really tell us how far it got into the population. Okay. All right. Here's like the $64,000 question. Ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. If an individual shows that they have antibodies for COVID-19, does that mean they're less likely to get it again? Are they immune protected? We do not know. There looks like some really good information and data out there that shows that they're not protected. And it's clear that some people mount a really good immune response and may be protected, but that's a really small number. There's also some information that one, getting it the first time might actually mean that the second time you get it may, is worse. So we're trying to work all those things out at UCSD, and that really is important for our vaccine design and um, delivery. Okay. Here's a couple of people have asked related questions. We'll try to put it into one question. So what's the relationship between convalescent sera, neutralizing antibodies, and monoclonal antibodies? <laughs> Those are good questions. So convalescent sera is when someone has been infected and then their body makes an immune response over time. And that just means it's convalescent over time. And some of those people, some, but not everybody, will make antibodies that are able to kill the virus. And that's what we call neutralizing antibodies. And sometimes when they make it, they make tons of neutralizing antibody and it might be a whole bunch of different kinds and that's called polyclonal. And then if we find a really good one, just one, then we can pull it out, we pluck it out and grow it up and that's called monoclonal. Great. All right. There are a lot more questions about testing, but I'm going to give you a break just for a few minutes. <laughs> and there are a lot of questions generally about public health that I'll direct to Dr. Anderson. Um, one of which I don't know the answer to, so I hope you do. There was this discussion about how Sweden approached the pandemic versus how the U.S. approached the pandemic. I think it has something to do with self-isolation. But um, I hope you know, because I don't. Go ahead. All right. So, um, so thank you for that, David. You're welcome. Um, in Sweden, um, the government has decided to just sort of have very limited public health intervention. So what does that mean? Well, the sort of um, social distancing or physical distancing that we're doing here, the lack of congregating, um, you've heard across much of the United States recommendations for no more than 10 people being gathered. And even if those people are gathered to be at least uh, six feet apart, those um, measures were not put into place in Sweden. Uh, and so I'll take this question maybe in two bits. So first is what's happening there? Well, if you look across their region um, and compare what their death rates look like um, across uh, Norway's death rates, Denmark's death rates, and Finland's death rates, you'll see that they are experiencing the highest um, number. Now, how governments respond are by people's social uh, cultural context and some things that will uh, be okay in certain parts of the world would certainly never be okay in many parts of the US. Now, what we see in the US, however, is a varied response um, around the kinds of public health measures that have been taken. And so we have really a natural experiment unfolding in front of our eyes. Um, we are here in California, more specifically in San Diego, where on February 14th, our county health department in an act of love declared a national emergency, right? About a month later, our governor declared that the entire state should shelter in place. We were amongst the um, first regions 
and states to really start taking those strong public health measures. And when you look at what the epidemic models were telling us about the level of devastation with regards to need for ICU beds, need for ventilators, that could have happened in this region if we did nothing like they were doing in Sweden, it was simply unacceptable. I mean, these were numbers that wouldn't allow you to sleep at night. And after we put those strong public health measures in place, we've noticed that our region is actually doing pretty well in terms of being able to stay within the capacity that we have to treat people. So um, those are uh, the, what we know so far about the way those two approaches have unfolded. And we'll see much more because there's a great deal of variety in how um, the government has chosen to respond to this pandemic. Another question is a, is a real epidemiological question. Um, once you have COVID positive patient, um, what do you do with that information for the patient? And what do you do about tracking down contacts? Yeah, so um, there, there are four things that happen um, that I will add to the list of things that Davey talked about and that Lars talked about with regards to vaccines and testing to really help us uh, out of a pandemic. And those are the public health um, practices. So the first thing is we need to test to just tag on to what Davey said earlier to really understand the denominator or the universe of, of infections that we're dealing with. And we need a good public health strategy where testing is accessible, feasible. Um, there really aren't any barriers in the community to getting that done. And then if a case appears, David, as you just mentioned, we want to do a case investigation. We really want to understand what has that case been doing in terms of movement throughout the community? And when we identify where and with whom those cases have been in contact, um, what the contacts now, whether they're high-risk contacts, moderate or low-risk contacts, are doing with themselves. Because this is how you see that exponential increase in the number of transmissions across many parts of our country and across our world. When you find a case and you understand um, the contacts around that case, you deliver excellent information and you isolate, right? So the self-isolation that happens there prevents further infection from happening. And then with the, with the contacts, you quarantine. And again, preventing further infections from some of those contacts are likely high-risk contacts from those happening as well. So this is a suite of public health activities that we put together to allow for um, the, the, the back end of what Davey talked about, which is how we get out of this pandemic. Right. Very good. All right, we have a couple questions for Dr. Bode. Um, one is um, a question about... Um, um, milk banks, and are they safe, and how do you get access to them? Mm -hmm. So uh, there is, in fact, uh, milk banks, and UC San Diego is building one right now that's uh, added to the number of milk banks uh, in North America that we have, uh, lots of milk banks in Europe as well. Um, so milk banks take donations from the community, milk donations, and then process the milk, pasteurize it to kill off potential pathogens, and then um, distribute that milk mostly to neonatal intensive care units where it's needed the most for the preterm infants. Um, so that is currently a question uh, that we're trying to address together with the Human Milk Banking Association of North America, Short Humbana, uh, that our milk bank here in San Diego, which is led by Dr. Lisa Stalwagen, uh, is part of as well. So the question is first, is the virus in human milk? And I think we can say from everything we've seen so far that the virus is not in human milk. Um, but even if it were in human milk, does the pasteurization process that Humbana has in place 
uh, does that kill the virus? And is it safe to then provide donor milk? And I think uh, everything we've seen there so far is yes, it is. Uh, but again, we're still working on that. We're using the same protocol that uh, Humbana is using in their different milk banks, uh, spiking in the virus to see if we can kill it with that procedure. Very good. Um, here's another one for, for Dr. Bode. If a mother tests positive for antibodies, can she pass them on um, to a trial through, um, through breastfeeding? We don't know that answer yet for human milk for this specific virus. So what we've seen for other diseases so far is that mom does develop antibodies to other viruses, to other pathogens, bacteria. And that's the beauty really of human milk. So mom is really sampling the environment and seeing what kind of pathogens are out there. The immune system responds, provides antibodies, and those antibodies are very often handed over with the human milk, with breastfeeding to the infant and then protects the infant as well. Uh, that is not uh, yet ready to produce those antibodies um, itself. So um, I, I think from everything we've seen from other diseases, uh, this is very likely, but that's something we're actively working on right now, also together with uh, Dr. Davy Smith and the Center for AIDS Research to see if those antibodies are in human milk if mom is in fact exposed. And a partially overlapping question, but, but somewhat different, is that what type of antibodies um, are produced that are secreted into the milk and and are these the antibodies that you know dr smith was talking about that could be protective yeah like i said we don't know at this point exactly what kind of antibodies are made uh, uh, against this specific virus and what kind of antibodies are then handed over through human milk if um but from everything we've seen so far um um that should be the kind of antibodies that dr smith was talking about as well very good. Okay, I hope Dr. Smith is well rested because there are a lot of questions for him. Ready? Yeah. <laughs> good man. Okay, so if um, is COVID-19 like the flu? Are there different strains? And will having antibodies to one strain help an individual be less susceptible to getting another strain? That's yeah, a good question. Are, yeah, wow. those are great <laughs> questions. So it is sort of like the flu in that it causes an upper respiratory tract infection that then can become a pneumonia. And then after that, uh, it has a pretty high mortality once a pneumonia sets in, sort of like the flu. But it, it's a very different virus than the flu. And with the flu, oftentimes it's because of other infections that come in once the body is weak that causes people to die. In this virus, it's really an inflammation or an immune response that happens that causes people to die. And then the second question is there are multiple strains. It doesn't look like there's really much difference in terms of strains. We're a little early in the epidemic to know if there's gonna be mutation that causes strains uh, to cause problems, but right now it's really just one strain. And at the moment we have no idea what we call a correlate of protection is. So is there an antibody out there that somebody would make that would then protect them from new infections? We just really don't know yet. Very good. The next one is kind of a medical question um, about two of the known complications of COVID-19, which is um, renal failure and um, disseminated intravascular coagulation with thrombosis in severely ill patients. Do you want to um, comment on how that could be related to the virus? Yeah, so uh, there, we spend a lot of time talking about this in uh, our group and our infectious diseases colleagues for sure. In fact, I don't know if people have heard about COVID toes lately, but um, it's basically a rash that happens in people's toes that even when they get asymptomatic infection. We know that many viral infections can mess with the um, blood clotting system. And when that happens, 
you can get more blood clots that might happen in your heart, and that would be a heart attack, or if it happened in your brain, that would be a stroke. And this virus seems to also manipulate that pathway to increase those things happening. And sometimes it can be just simple, like the little blood clotting problems in your toes, and it just causes a little rash that'll go away. But if you're older and you're predisposed to those things, it might cause a stroke or a heart attack. Very good. And we'll get you one more. Um, this is um, sort of epidemiology testing. It says when one compares the number of infected people versus number of tested people on a daily basis, the percentage is fairly low. In other words, the number of positive fairly low. Don't people need to have satisfied a certain COVID-19 criteria before they are tested? Yeah, so at the moment, our testing is really related to uh, symptoms and then who you might have been in contact with and those sorts of things. So we haven't done the really important epidemiology studies like Dr. Anderson was talking about to go out and randomly sample households or groups of people to figure out how far it's gone into the community. And uh, that's really important and that's the next stage. There's actually one I can answer, so I'm, I'm going to take this one. Ready? <laughs> it says, I know that elective surgeries are now allowed. However, experts are saying that the summer heat will bring more problems and then the flu season will bring back the virus. How long do you think the quarantine will last? The only thing I know, I actually know the answer to is that we are not doing elective surgeries. What we're doing is taking care of people who we delayed their essential surgeries. So for example, if you needed a radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer, and we thought we we're only going to be, you know, quarantined for months. You could wait a month. There's no risk. But if you wait longer, then it becomes a risk. So what we're doing now is taking care of essential surgeries that we were felt comfortable delaying for a while, and now we're going to do it. We are not going to do elective surgeries in the foreseeable future. So I, I want to get that out. The hospital is a very safe place. We're very careful about who's COVID-19 positive. There's a separate entryway for um, the emergency room. There's a central entryway to the hospital. Everyone in the hospital is, um, is, is masked now, patients and, and, and staff. And um, it is a safe place to have essential surgeries. We do not want to do elective surgeries yet. Okay, but you can answer, Dave. <laughs> Dave, you can answer the one about, if you like, about the um, um, about the, how long will quarantine last, or maybe Cheryl wants to answer that, or anyone can answer it, <laughs> but anyone but me. Uh, I'll let Cheryl go ahead. <laughs> how <laughs> well, long do you think uh, we're going to have the quarantine last? I mean, I think it's a good question. I don't really know the answer to. It's a fantastic question, yeah. and none of us really has the crystal ball on this one. I will tell you, however, that uh, epidemic modelers have been priceless in um, our understanding and being able to prepare for some of the, the questions that are coming right now around um, how long will things last and how many resources will we need, et cetera. Um, um, based on having very strong public health practices in place, if we kept up our physical distancing, if we kept up having travel bans, if we kept up not congregating, in the middle of June, we could possibly uh, see our infections go down to zero based on some of the models. Now, we are asking questions about removing those strategies. And until some of the places that have experienced their epidemics before us 
show us what happens when those strategies are removed. We can't model out what we're going to experience here. So I can give you a few examples, and David, you can chime in if you know any, um, or Lars too. Hong Kong, uh, where you you know quickly saw um, an increase in, in the number of infections after they had their first epidemic curve, even to a place that was worse than they uh, were in before. So it's an open question. Um, from what I can tell, um, we will need some measure of um, public health distancing and uh, lack of congregating until those key things that Davy said we're going to need, you know, really good therapy and a really good vaccine uh, come to bear. Thank you so much. Um, let's do one more question, and that will be for Dr. Bode. And the question that was sort of a Everyone's interested in this question. Um, when you're breastfeeding, how long do the benefits last um, for both the mom and, and the baby? Uh, I would say it depends on what kind of benefits we're looking at. Uh, so we talked about diarrhea, for example, the immediate right. benefit, right? So you immediately benefit from that. Uh, then uh, there's the studies that look, for example, and, and we have some new data on this as well, on cardiovascular disease, where we see that both human infants as well as mice in our, in our lab setting when they receive certain components from human milk uh, during the breastfeeding period, later on in life, and this could be in mouse uh, lives, it could be 30 weeks, in humans, it could be when you're 50 or 60, you're at a lower risk to develop uh, atherosclerosis, which is the, uh, the culprit that causes stroke and heart attack. Uh, so it could be individual components in human milk that really set you up for a health benefit when you're 50, 60, or 70 years old. So it really depends on what disease we're looking at. Uh, and how long that uh, that horizon might last. It could be immediate benefits, uh, but certainly there is very good indication to show that there is lifetime uh, benefits. Very good. Um, I want to thank um, our three um, panelists. I want to thank you all for um, for spending your time with us. We can use um, some feedback to see if, the, if, if this was a, a good venue and useful for you. Um, we have set up a COVID-19 emergency response fund for those of you who would like to support our efforts on this front. This is a particularly good time because the Conrad Previs Foundation has provided us with $350,000 challenge grant. So it'll be matched dollar for dollar. Um, you'll, you'll receive follow-up emails and webinar information, and you can visit the UCSD campaign on campaign.ucsd.edu. Thank you all. Stay um, safe, healthy, and well. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.